Good morning again. Take your Bibles this morning. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And in the last few years, you may have picked up kind of our pattern uh, in the spring and the fall. In the spring, we get into a New Testament study, uh, have a New Testament series. And then in the fall, we fall back into the Old Testament. I had planned to be in Judges over the next several weeks, but feel God leading in a different direction. We will pass through Judges uh, in this series. Uh, We're actually going to be moving all over uh, the Old Testament in a series that we're going to call the Gospel Thread. All right, we're going to spend several weeks uh, looking at some stories that are probably familiar to a lot of us. uh, Stories that we're going to like. We're going to look at this morning: Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, a snake, tree, apple. Many of you are familiar with that story. A story that we've heard a lot. You remember uh, seeing uh, probably on a flannel graph board if you grew up in church or saw a Veggie Tales episode about. Uh, or read in a kid's storybook Bible. There's, there's stories that we can often think about as just kids' stories. And they're, of course, not that. Now, there's stories that we do read uh, to our kids at night as we try to teach them about God and about his word. But we just got to be careful that we don't think about them in like a cartoonish way for the rest of our life. Right? We don't think about uh, stories like David and Goliath as David is kind of this cartoony young man who slings a slingshot on, and you see that kind of that uh, animated picture, uh, you know, in your mind on a page and you got the cartoony looking giant that gets hit, uh, in, in the forehead. Uh, we've got to be careful that we understand that it's way more realistic and detailed than that. All right. I'm not saying you need to go full throttle with your kids before you go to bed at night and explaining all the details in certain ways, like in David and Goliath. All right, kids gather around. And then at the end of the battle, David took Goliath's sword, sawed off his head and lifted up his decapitated bloody head for all of the Philistine army to see night, night. Don't let the bed bugs bite. I keep it real, but just also, you know, unpack it appropriately. I'm just saying my point is that these stories aren't just meant to be cleaned up, tidied up little cartoony stories that we keep in our heads for the rest of our lives. We've got to move beyond the flannel graph board and see that these are real life stories. These are actual historical events that happened along the timeline of human history, written, authored by the hand of the, of a divine sovereign God. And that they're not isolated events. They're not just events that we come to and learn some rules uh, for us to follow and some principles to apply to our life. That they're all, they're a collection of stories all telling one story. And that's the story of God reconciling all things broken in a sin-cursed world to himself through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That from Genesis to Revelation, there's a gospel thread running through every page of scripture, every passage, every verse. Every figure, every event, every institution, every part of it that all leads to one place. And that's the cross at Calvary where Jesus hangs in our place. It all points to the star of scripture and that's Jesus. And the big question is this, has that gospel thread run through your life? If it has not, we pray that today that through this series that God would use this to draw you to himself and that you'd be saved. If it has run through your life, if you are saved, my prayer is that your eyes will be more open through this study, that your heart will be more stirred to the beauty of this story that God has called you into. And now you are part of the storyline that begins right here, at least from our perspective, as we see the thread, the gospel thread surface for the first time in scripture. Stand with your Bibles open. Genesis chapter three. I'll begin to read in verse seven. Then the eyes of both, this is Adam and Eve, right after they had sinned. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
Then the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I've heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between you and your offspring. And by the way, if you believe that a good snake only, uh, what is it, a good snake is a dead snake, or vice versa, there's your verse, there's your support verse for that. Last part of 15, it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There it is. The first surfacing from our perspective of the gospel thread in scripture. Let's study this this morning. Have a seat as I pray. Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn your word. God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that we're not left alone in this world to just wander and try to figure things out on our own, but you've put in us your spirit. You've given us your word. It's like a light to the path that we walk. And so, Lord, I pray that we would allow it to shine onto our hearts, Father, that we would all lean in and be teachable and be changed forever as a result of being here together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point that leaps out in this series, and before I make the first point, there's going to be two points to this sermon and really expressing one big truth in this passage. And here it is. Sin destroys, but God's grace restores. Sin destroys, but God's grace restores restores. So the first point that leaps out in Genesis chapter three is the destruction of sin. Sin completely destroys. I'll just summarize a little bit before we get to this part of scripture. God's created the world. He spoke it all into existence. It was good, created every living creature on the earth. He creates man in his own image. He creates woman fashioning her out of one of the ribs of Adam, places them in a perfect place called the Garden of Eden, where they existed in perfect, unbroken fellowship with their heavenly father, enjoying him, delighting in him, serving him, worshiping him. Everything was perfect. Everything was good. Everything was innocent. Everything was whole. Then everything changed. Something happened. The Bible says that Satan, possessed by a snake, approaches Adam and Eve and tempts them. Uh, in other words, they face a test there in the Garden of Eden as to how much they trust God, how much they trust God's protection or how much they trust God's direction, how much they trust God's boundaries, how much they trust God's word, how much they trust their heavenly father. And they fail that test miserably. They eat from the one tree that God forbids them to eat from. And in a moment, everything changes. And with one act, destruction enters in. See, sins, it's interesting to think about. Sin makes you a lot of promises. It promises you a lot. Sin will always promise you life. Sin will always promise you what you perceive in, in your place as good. It will always promise to make you feel alive. It will always promise pleasure. And yet it always delivers death. It always delivers destruction. It always delivers exactly what God promises it, it will deliver. And that's death. He says the wages of sin is death. And in that moment of disobedience, the perfect world that they knew changed drastically. Hurricanes, cancer, miscarriages, uh, brokenness, anxiety, uh, rebellion, shame, and uh, separation from God, death, everything. Think about it. Everything we know is wicked. Everything we know is sad. Everything we know is tragic. Everything we know as bad comes rushing into the world at that moment as a result of sin. These are the consequences of sin. 
my kids, as they grow up, they, your kids, they learn about consequences for choices. Uh, my six-year-old, Max, he's learning about that. This is actually a good story for Max, all right? He, he was on the good side of this story. He comes home from school a couple weeks ago, and he's like, Dad, he's torn up. He said, Dad, these kids did some bad things at school. He said, they did, there's a, our principal got us into this room, and he yelled at us, and he told us uh, how, how bad we were and how we're not going to tear up his school. But Dad, there was these kids. They do this thing called a TikTok challenge. You know what a TikTok challenge is, Dad? I said, no, tell me what it is, Max. They videotape themselves destroying property. Dad, that's bad. That is not good. They should not do that. I was like, you are in the right place, Max. That's right. That is bad. <laughs> there was a time when, when he was three or four years old, I thought he might you know, be on the bad end of that kind of story. He said, that's bad. He said, they're going to be in trouble if he catches them. Well, this past Friday, he came home and he said, dad, those kids, he said, uh, he said, they got caught. My principal said in this quote, I wrote it down. He said, they got caught and he consequenced them really bad. (laughs) I said, what? He said, he consequenced them. I said, all right. I said, grammar's not great there, but he, he gets it right. With bad choices comes consequences, right? And that isn't anything new. In the beginning, when the first sin was committed, it resulted in horrible consequences, in destruction, in death, in all the sad things that we know exist in the world and in our own tragic bad things, in our own life, the wickedness we know is present and we still feel it today. And you know, here's the main thing. If we had to just make a big picture right here, the main thing that I believe arguably is the thing that really destroys all things it's the most tragic consequence uh, that, that sin brings is this. It destroys. This is the kind of destruction it brings. It destroys humanity's relationship with God. Sin has broken that. That's why they're hiding from God right here. Right? They know they're hiding because they know that sin has shattered what was once a beautiful, unbroken, perfect relationship that they had with their heavenly father. And it's done the same exact thing to us. Romans 5 verse 12 Shows us that we've inherited a sin nature from Adam. It says this, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He goes on to write in verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Whose trespass is Paul talking about right there? Whose trespass is he talking about in disobedience? He's talking about way down in Romans. He's talking about all the way back in Genesis 3, Adam's. This is the doctrine of original sin. This is the idea that, that we sin because we're sinners, right? We aren't sinners because we sin. We come out of the package. We come out of our mama's bellies naturally bent and with an aggression running through our veins towards sin, right? We, we all understand that we inherit things from our earthly parents, right? You'll hear people say, man, you're a splitting image of your dad. You're a splitting image of your mom. And you got your dad's eyes, you know? You, well, we know what it, what it means to, to inherit those characteristics from our earthly parents. But you need to know something this morning that you've inherited something from your first parents. And it's the tendency within you that you know is there to do what's wrong, a bent towards doing what is wrong, to hide in the truth, to be selfish, to boast, to covet, to put created things before God, to worship the created things within the created order instead of God himself, the creator of all of those things, to sin. You've inherited a sin nature. And just like Adam and Eve as they are bro- their, their relationship with God is broken and they know they're guilty and they're hiding in these bushes, And we too stand guilty before a holy God. And let me tell you, the evidence is overwhelming. 
It's an open and shut case. There isn't a lawyer on the planet that would take that case to defend you before a holy God. And here's why. He'd have to defend you before a holy God who's also the judge of the cosmos, who's also the key eyewitness in the case against you. He's the judge and the key eyewitness who sees into your heart, who knows that you've sinned against him. It's an open and shut case, guilty. And you may be thinking this morning, well, this sounds like some really, really bad news. And it is. But if you hold tight for a moment, there's good news. There's good news coming. Because what if that judge stepped down off of the stand and actually became your advocate? But before we get there, I want us to see the full scope of what we've inherited from our first parents. We've inherited, of course, a broken relationship with God. We're guilty before God. And our guilt, this is also something we inherit, brings shame. Which, by the way, is the appropriate response to sin. It's not the way God originally designed it to be. But it means we know something's wrong. We see that their eyes are open to their nakedness. They feel shame. And sin and shame can make us do some really weird, dumb things. Look at the way that Adam's responding right here. He's been walking in perfect fellowship with a God who who loves him, who's walked with him, who's created this place called the Garden of Eden, paradise. He's walked in fellowship with him. And in a moment when he sins, he loses his mind. He thinks the best option, this is the way Adam's thinking. He realized, what do we do? What do we do? I got it. All right, let's fashion together a fig leaf speedo and jump into the closest bush. That's the best idea I think we can come up with right now. Let's try to hide from the omniscient, omnipresent God. That's driven by his shame. The shame he feels before God. Just a few moments ago, he was naked and unashamed and they were uh, because they were, they were aware of how close they were in the love and the protection and the accept, acceptance of God. In a moment that's been stripped away and all he can think to do is to dive and to hide because they feel ashamed. And what they're doing right here is they're desperately trying to fix the problem with their own hands. As do we. As do you. And as do I. In our sin nature. See, what Adam's little fig leaf underwear thing is really is it's the first religion. It's an attempt to cover up the sin and the ugliness and the shame with something, with his own hands. But the works of their hands are not good enough. And as we try to cover our sin, the works of our hands are not good enough. And there's a lot of ways that I could talk about how people try to cover their sin and cover their shame. We could talk about secularism. We could talk about just hedonism and people who live uh, in, in rebellious ways, just ways to try to medicate the shame that they feel, the cycles people live in, all the different philosophies people latch on to to try to cover the sin and the shame that they feel and deal with the brokenness that they know needs to be fixed. And they try to, to you know, confront that and address that with the works of their own hands. But I'll just say this, in a place like this, you've gathered here this morning, I would say that there's a lot of people here, the way you cover up is you try to cover up, is you try to strive for some kind of religious performance. Like if I could only get to church enough, if I could only be around godly people enough, if I could just try harder, if I could read my Bible enough, if I could just get to the place where I check off all the right religious boxes, maybe then I could, then you're, what you're doing, you're fashioning together fig leaves. You're taking matters into your own hands. And I just want you to know this morning that the answer is not the answer to you being covered by you, you covering your sin and your shame and fixing the problem inside of you. The, the answer is not achieving some kind of religious performance perfection. The answer is resurrection. You need life. Spiritually, you're dead. You're dead in trespasses and sin. You need new life, which is another problem because you need life, which is something you don't have the ability to conjure up in in and of yourself. You're dead. You don't have the power to give yourself life. 
You're spiritually dead. You're a naturally born rebel on the run. You're full of shame, full of fear, scared of a God who takes sin that seriously. That's why a lot of people avoid biblical Christianity. That's why a lot of people avoid this Bible. That's why a lot of people get kind of recoil when you hear the word of God laid out like this because you're scared. You're fearful. You're scared like he is in that bush of a God who takes sin this seriously. Because deep down, we know we don't have what it takes. And you say, man, this is some really, really, really bad news. But just hold tight because there's some good news coming. Because what if the one who is the only hope that you have, who you run from, actually pursues rebels on the run like you? But you need to know something that if that salvation is possible, really it's only possible if first you're willing willing to get out behind the bush that you're hiding behind, and to own your sin. See, we don't like owning our sin. You see what Adam does right here? He has an opportunity to come out with his hands up, say, God, you got me. I'm sorry. What does he do? He does something that we have the propensity to do that we've also inherited from them, and it's something called the blame shift game. Instead of saying, I'm sorry, what does he do? God says, Adam, have you eaten of the tree that I told you to stay away from? And he goes, the woman made me do it. It's her fault, right? Not good. Somebody sleeping on the couch tonight, right? Not a good move, Adam, as a husband. No one is owning sin right here in this passage. Adam's like, see, here's the problem, God. I was doing pretty good as a bachelor. I was actually doing pretty awesome as a bachelor. Hanging out with the animals, hanging out with the elephants, hanging out with the lions, hanging out with the bears, hanging out with the tigers, hanging out with the dogs, not so much the cats, but hanging out with the dogs. And then you had the idea to create this woman, to give me a wife. And what did she do? Messed it up for everybody. Adam's playing the victim card. And really what he's doing, he's playing the blame game. He's blaming, not really Eve right here, he's blaming God. He's blaming the giver of the gift. A few verses ago, he was smitten. He was excited about the gift that God had given him in this woman. He laid his eyes on this woman and you get like the first rap song poem in scripture. He says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Praise Jesus. What a gift. And in a moment, sin enters in. He's like, really, God, you gave me this woman? Seriously? Not a good moment for their marriage, by the way. All right. From this moment on, they were married for like, I don't know, like eight, nine hundred years. Right. I just I, I can't I can only imagine what that marriage was like. Hey, it's easy to knock on Adam and Eve right here. Hey, but we have inherited the same problem. We have inherited the same propensity to blame shift, to point our finger at our spouse, to point our finger at our parents. If they just would have raised me differently, if my spouse was more caring spouse, if my friends were, were, were not such a bad influence on me, I mean, if the world that I lived in, if it wasn't just easy, so easy to get access to the thing I have access, blame shifters. And we can't start the healing until we stop the blaming. Blaming others. Blaming God. Instead, we have to own our sin. We have to own the reality that we are rebels. We have to look into Genesis chapter 3 and go, this is me. I have the disease. You say, this is really, really bad news. And it is. Sin has entered in and the consequences are dire. Our relationship with God's been broken. Our relationship with other people has been wrecked. Hey, listen, all the fighting happening in homes last night and today in this nation, in this world, maybe even in the lives of people in this room, all of the abuse, all of the dysfunction, all the pride, all the sneaking around, all the lying, it's all entered in because of sin. We have the disease. We're spiritually dead because of it. 
And we have every reason, because those things are true, to feel ashamed and to feel fear of a God who takes sin this seriously. This is really, really bad news. But there's good news. Praise God, there's good news. News that may be new to some of you this morning that you'll need to accept, and we hope you do. Your life will be changed forever. But also it may be news that you know, but you need to know that you never need to get over it, that you never need to get tired of hearing it, that you never need to grow cold towards it. It's the truth that there is a gospel thread that runs through this passage. There's a thread of hope and grace that will run not just through this passage, but through the rest of Scripture to a time, to a place, on a cross, when the serpent's work will be crushed forever. Sin destroys, but point two, God's grace fully restores. There are not only consequences that we see in this passage, there's also a cure for sin. We even see it in the way, we see God's grace on display, even in the way that God's approaching Adam in the garden. You see that God isn't accusing, running in, accusing him. He's not rushing in, frustrated. He's not coming in with a sledgehammer. This is a picture of a loving father, also a picture scholars believe that Jesus had in mind as he's giving the parable of the prodigal son of a, of a loving father coming to pursue a wayward, lost, helpless, hiding in his underwear in the woods, son who's lost his way and who's desperate. Adam, son, where are you? This is him asking, this is him wooing, this is him pursuing this lost son, asking questions to help his son self-diagnose his condition. Where are you? Think God bad at hide and go seek. This is God tenderly, softly pursuing and drawing to himself rebellious kids who are hiding from him. He's a pursuer. Number two, he's also a rescuer. He doesn't just pursue, he rescues. And who's the answer to his rescue plan? It's Jesus. Verse 14, God curses the serpent. And look at the hope found in verse 15. What he's doing is he's telling Satan, hey, listen, you're going to have some offspring. Eve, you're going to have some offspring. And he uses a, a singular uh, word there talking about he. He says, Satan, you're going to have some offspring. Eve, you're going to have some offspring. Eve's is going to win. That's the short of it. There it is. This is where from our perspective, we see for the first time in scripture, the gospel thread surface. This is what scholars call the proto-evangelion. This means the first announcement of the gospel. I love this, that right after the first sin is, com is committed, that flips the world upside down, that throws everything into a mess, a curse falls, right after that happens, the gospel is preached. Right after everything just completely gets messed up, God immediately steps in after it falls apart and says, I got a plan. I've had a plan the entire time. And Eve who was deceived, look at God's grace right here, is the one who's going to produce an offspring. That one of her descendants is going to come and destroy the tempter, is going to destroy the work of Satan. And when you look at the cross, you can see the thread in reverse. You can see the prophecy coming alive in reverse. He made the promise there. One of your descendants, and you look at the cross, Jesus hanging there, and you can follow the thread back to David. You can follow it from David back to Abraham. You can follow it from Abraham back to Noah, from, from Noah to Seth, and there's Adam and Eve. And God promises Eve that from her a savior will come. Genesis promises, promises that it'll happen. And you follow the thread all the way to the cross. Where what God said would happen, happened. Where Jesus' heel was bruised and Satan's head was bruised. Now that word bruise, it may be a little confusing. It is the same meaning in both of those places. 
Satan's head will, bru- head will be bruised. Jesus' heel will be bruised. Same word just means violently struck. It means to be violently struck. So the, the word is the same in both places, but the, the striking's happening in different places. He says that Satan will be struck in the head. Jesus will be struck in the heel. Let me just ask you, would you rather be violently struck, be violently struck in the heel or the head? So what God is saying right here to the serpent is he's saying one day it's coming where Jesus, my son, the savior of the world, the promised one, the Messiah, the lamb of God is going to stomp your work out and stomp you out on the cross. And he will be bruised. You will be killed. And on the cross, Jesus did just that. First John 3, 8, 3, 8 tells us that he destroyed the work of Satan and in his death provides a cure for sinners like us. You say, well, how does he do it? Get another picture and look in verse 21 of this chapter. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is where we see the first death happen as a result of sin. First living creature physically has to die. An animal has to be sacrificed. And they're covered with the skins of those animals. Later, God will require, if you read the Leviticus, you'll see the sacrificial system. God, later, God will require animal sacrifices to, as an ongoing kind of temporary atonement for sin because something has to die to cover sin. Something has to die to create fellowship between us and the God who we're separated from because of our sin. But at all points, they're, they're not supposed to be taken as permanent Ways to atone for sin. They all all point to the permanent way. They all point to the greater sacrifice. Hebrews explains that the blood of animals couldn't take away sin. They're all meant, the sacrificial system, every institution, every sacrifice, every system, every figure, every event is all pointing to the cross of Christ. All pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world on our behalf, on that cross, dying for sins once and for all, offering atonement for sins for all who believe. And when you trust in his death, in his resurrection for the forgiveness of your sin, a supernatural exchange happens in your life. Jesus gets your sin, you get his righteousness. Your sin is put on him at the cross where he bears your sin in your place. He absorbs the wrath of God in your place. And in exchange, you know what you get? This is why it's called amazing grace transferred into your spiritual bank account as his righteousness. And just like God took those animal skins and put them around Adam and Eve and said, hey, listen, you can't clothe yourself. You can't cover yourself. Let me do it for you. When you come to Jesus, when you confess your sins, when you get out from behind the bush and you say, you got me, what he does when you trust in Jesus is he covers you forever in the perfect righteousness of a son. He covers your sin it covers your shame. It covers your guilt. And you never have any reason to fear his judgment again. Has that happened to you? And I ask you, how will you respond to this today? Because the same question that this God who woos and pursues and walks into the garden asking, it's a question that he could very well be asking you today. Hey, where are you? Where are you in your relationship with God today? I venture to say in a crowd this size, there's some of you who you're still stained by your sin. You've not thrown the full weight of your faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And I'm telling you, based on God's word, not on my word, not on my opinion, not, a, not based on the opinion of a group of people who 
who are just trying to make the life, life miserable for other people who are trying to have fun in the world. Based on the authority of God's unchanging, eternal word, you are living in the consequences of your sin. And if your sin is never remedied, if your sin is never dealt with, you will die an eternal death because of the consequences of your sin. And you know that. The evidence is all around. As God pursued them and said, you can be cured. There's a free gift of salvation available to you. The question, here's the big question. Will you just get out from behind the bush and say, you're right. I'm a sinner. It's my, nobody else's fault. I'm a sinner. I need help. God, will you help me? Now, here's the question some of you are wondering. I'm saved. What's the application here for my life? Are you a believer this morning? Well, let me ask you this. How is this passage continuing to impact your life this morning? Let me ask it to you like this. Let's just get, can we just get real? Can church be a place where we can get real? What do you do when what you have done is wrong? Everybody have a perfect week? Everybody just killing it, crushing it, perfect score in the way you treated your wife or your husband or people around you? Anybody had a perfect score with your thought life? I'm talking to Christians, hey, of course not. So what do you do? You snapped at your wife, lost your cool at work. What do you do when you've gone to the website you know you shouldn't go to? What do you do when that relationship at work has gone too far? What do you do when you sin? And this is what's crazy that although we've experienced salvation, although we know that Jesus took the shame and the condemnation that we deserve and that, that we did not earn, that he earned for us and that he covers us with his righteousness, that we will still often after we sin try to hide. Instead of turning once again to the one who saved us and confessing our sin and repenting and experiencing his grace in a fresh way, we throw back on the fig leaf underwear and jump back in the bush. It's crazy. And I just wonder how many of you, you know Jesus, you're saved, but boy, you wander. You've drifted. And what you've done is you've drifted back into this fake superficial relationship with God. Because when you sin and when you blow it and when you transgress against your creator, you don't show it to God and you try to hide it. You say, I'm not a hider. I'm, I'm at church. Really? I just sing songs about God. I'm sitting here listening to a sermon from his word. I went to Sunday school today. I'm part of a small group. I serve. You know me. I'm not, I'm a Facebook friend with you. I'm not hiding from anybody. Listen, just because you're in a crowd doesn't mean you're not hiding. In fact, church can often become a pretty bush that we try to hide in. You say, well, why would somebody do that? You've taken your eyes off the gospel. You've taken your eyes off the beauty of the gospel. You've taken your eyes off the beauty of that supernatural transaction. You've taken your eyes off the beauty of the doctrine of justification. You've taken your eyes off the truth that because of the gospel, I don't have to fear God. I don't have to hide in shame. I don't have to fear his judgment anymore. I don't have to hide in a bush because I'm hidden in Christ. And you need to remember once again what God sees when he looks at you. He doesn't see disobedience. He sees Christ's obedience. He doesn't see your impurity. He sees Jesus' purity. He doesn't see when he looks into your life, your unfaithfulness. He sees Christ's unending, perfect faithfulness. He doesn't see you in your sin and your shame. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the way positionally God sees you. Nothing can change that. 
You can do nothing to make him love you any more or any less. You are beloved. You're completely loved by God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Romans 8, 1, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you do sin and you will, what are you hiding from? This means you can live in the freedom of coming to God in your weakness because you know he's not grading you on your performance. You've been made clean because of what Jesus has done. Therefore, in your weakness, you can come to God where his grace will pour over you again and again. And that's where you'll be filled with the power to run the race that you're running effectively. For his glory. Stop hiding. Stop running. Keep short accounts with God. Listen to this. If you hear anything that I've said over the last several minutes, listen to this right here. Christian maturity, spiritual intimacy is not about you living a perfect life. It's not about you pretending that you're living a perfect life. It's about you staying out of the bushes. It's about you walking in the light, not hiding, not blaming people around you for your sin. Well, she pushes my buttons and she, it's your, your, those are your buttons last time I checked. Well, he knows how to push my buttons. And if he didn't, they're your buttons. Own it. Well, if my boss wasn't a jerk, I wouldn't be. Own it. Well, my kids drive me to the edge. If I just got a new set of, set of friends, I would, I, if I could move somewhere else, my problems would, inside of me would disappear. No, because the problem is inside of you. You can't escape it. You can't escape you. It's blame shifting. Tale as old as time. Stop passing the buck. Stop hiding in the bushes. Take ownership of your sin. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to each other. Go and seek forgiveness from somebody that you've sinned against. And may we boast in how weak we are for the glory of God. Let's be a church that doesn't run from God, but to him. That doesn't pretend like everything's okay, but continuously rest on the finished work of our perfect savior, Jesus Christ, who died publicly in our place on that cross, rose from the dead. And is the remedy for sin. And if you're a Christ follower, you're hidden in him, which means you don't have to hide in the bushes anymore. What are you doing? Come out of the bushes, confess your sin. Instead of running around reveling in shame and reveling in guilt, you get to revel around in the grace of God. And the unending forgiveness and love that he has for you. Let's stop there. Let's pray.